Today is Sunday, the 26th of March. When I woke up this morning, I switched on TV and I wanted to catch up on the latest news. I perused the Sunday newspapers as I do very early. I sometimes do it on the Saturday night if I have insomnia reading my digital copy. I thought, let me have a look at how the news of the week is being rounded up on our news channels. And I was just in time, a minute or two before a conference that I didn't know had been scheduled, a press conference by Minister of Basic Education, Angie Mochecha. And what I want to do in this episode of Eusebius on Times Live is to take an opportunity I did not know I wanted this morning to step back from her performance in relation to making sure that the norms and standards agreed to exactly 10 years ago in terms of what constitutes a school in terms of physical infrastructure had been complied with since 2013 when the agreement legally between civil society organizations and the minister had effectively become a court order that they will make sure that in the length and breadth of the country, every single school is a proper school and that we have clear timelines, a commitment on the part of the state, as well as very specific descriptions of what constitutes acceptable basic infrastructure for learning to be able to take place. But I must say I was deeply disappointed, and that's why I've spent several hours this morning thinking, reading, going through the archives before putting together this piece of explainer journalism combined with political analysis of my own. And the reason I was disappointed is because although the minister had called the press conference to get into the details at the end of the financial year, of the state of basic education, spending that had been going on, and to take stock of a number of different areas in relation to infrastructure broadly, it became apparent within the first couple of minutes that actually the minister was really simply trying to react to a provocation that it had felt uh, on the part of the Democratic Alliance when it came to an absolutely horrible recent incident in the Eastern Cape where a four-year-old had, on most reports of the time, been found to have died again in a pit toilet. And the minister was at pains to explain that the four-year-old, Langa Viki's death, in fact, did not occur at his school, that there was, secondly, proper sanitation infrastructure that is new at the school, but that they had, for some other reason, not yet, at the same time, scrapped and removed the old infrastructure. And furthermore, she added, the little child, may her soul rest in peace, could at any rate not have been strong enough to really even lift the lid in the pit routines that should have been removed by now. And, like a lawyer, she adds, the body was at any rate found behind the pit toilet 
Um, and then she says, quote, I don't want to be defensive. I've never heard someone say, I don't want to be defensive so many times and variations on that phrase. And yet the bulk of the preparatory remarks before they allowed the director general in the department to speak and then take questions was clearly about this particular incident. And it became very clear to me that this wasn't really primarily about doing overall stock taking of infrastructure in our schools, the length and breadth of the country, that this was in response to what had happened in the Eastern Cape. For me, even though I really like the minister, I've known her for many, many years. I've been at many events where she had spoken. I've engaged her. I have interviewed her. Professionally, in my role as a journalist and broadcasting analyst, I would characterize it as one of those relationships that are very cordial and very functional. Despite that, it would be remiss of me as an analyst not to say how I felt, and maybe others felt differently in terms of what she had chose to spend her time on and how it came across. It came across as off-color. The timing was completely wrong. No sense of self-shame as a government that pit toilets exist at all, and to know how we are triggered by way too many continued incidents of death in our schools and drownings in pit toilets, to sound like a forensic defense attorney rather than as a mom, a teacher, a minister that really feels with a family and way too many communities underserviced by her government, of which she has been a part for centuries. For me, that was just from a tone point of view and a communication point of view, completely the wrong line to take and the long, wrong stance to adopt. And I thought that that was really, quite frankly, most unfortunate. So what I want to do now is to just give you a sense of, you know, how far back all of this goes. Well, as I said on social media, I've been in journalism now for, I don't know, some 15 years or so. And the lack of compliance with providing access to basic education in terms of making sure every community has got, firstly, the infrastructure necessary for learning to take place, and that's before we even get to sufficient and quality teachers and curricula and teaching materials. That is a story that goes back way too long. I mean, I was a rookie broadcaster late at night. Premier Panyaza Lesufi was back then her spokesperson. He would come on. You'd remember the debacle in relation to textbooks in Limpopo. She herself was an MEC before a national minister dealing with a lot of these crises. And that, to me, is a story of a minister that by now should have resigned, quite frankly, even if you don't get fired. Because the shame that you should be feeling in relation to not, in fact, doing what you are constitutionally mandated to do is a shame that should have choked your career by now, rather than being permanently within the executive, not delivering, and yet, despite not delivering, you have the audacity of coming on this morning, the 26th of March, 2023, 10 years after agreeing on what constitutes 
norms and standards and still not having, in fact, complied with it. It took me literally just a couple of minutes before I had found in the archives examples of a minister looking much younger in which she, in fact, had wrestled with the same issues and been held accountable, but nothing ever changes. I mean, here's a little bit of an interview from nine years ago. And this is courtesy CNBC Africa. And this was a show called Political Exchange that was hosted by the late Karima Brown. And in, in this interview, now, now for me, the most important thing here is nine years ago, Times Live listeners and readers, nine years ago, my NG was having this conversation. And, um, and for me, it's just absolutely incredible that this conversation took place nine years ago. And I'm going to play the first couple of minutes, pause there and analyze it for you as well. Have a listen to, to this exchange between Karima Brown and Angie Mocheha. ...from both opposition political parties as well as civil society organizations. She's often literally in the eye of the storm. She joined us as our special guest tonight on Political Exchange. Minister, thank you for your time and welcome. Now, of course, we've seen recently that the court has stipulated that you have to um, provide norms and standards um, by which we are able to then measure implementation, particularly as it relates to infrastructure in schools. When I looked at your um, budget vote speech in 2011, you told the National Assembly it's going to take 20 years considering the legacy of apartheid for us to catch up with the backlog. Minister, why did equal education have to go to court to get you to say it's a difficult thing to do and we need to have an agreement on you know when we can do it so that we can all keep each other accountable it's a very unfortunate the way the matter has been distorted i can tell you karim the question of norms and standards even was done by my predecessor minister pando when i was still mc regulated norms and standards which we have been using ever since the sector and those were just a framework guiding provinces. And when equal education came with a storm, I could have resisted because the act says I can. Uh, you know, it's my discretion to do it. But I really felt that I don't need a battle with them. So that I've been ordered by the court. It's not it's a distortion of facts, and that's what I've even said to them. And when we met with them, said to them, we've never as a state refused to have norms and standards. We are the ones which led with norms and standards. But to have them as regulations, it doesn't even hurt us also. Uh, we can have them as regulations. I don't want to go to court with you and fight, fight, fight with you. The last week's case, the, the, the case that happened, it was an agreement. And I was quite surprised when they said they have won settlement against me. It's an agreement. Okay, I said to them, let's, let's leave it around the language whether mm -hmm. you've won or they've won or whether it's an agreement. The reality, Minister, is that everybody is trying to make sure that that which the government promises is in fact delivered. When we look at the question of infrastructure, particularly as it relates to mud schools, sometimes what is promised is not delivered. And sometimes the reason for that is not necessarily with you. It is also down the pipeline. Take us through why at some point... Okay, so I'm going to just come out of that there, right? Now, the first thing for me that's interesting there is this is nine years ago. Nine years ago, the minister had acceded to requests on the part of equal education that there be an agreement on what constitutes norms and standards. Now the phrase norms and standards are bandied about as if it is something that had been really, from a technical point of view, crafted sharply by government itself unprompted. 
and that is not the case. They had to be dragged, kicking, and screaming in a piece of lawfare involving excellent civil society organizations like Equal Education and Section 27 over the years, Equal Education's Law Center doing great work, and social justice litigators supporting them, both the ones who work for them and the ones outside who have a deep sense of commitment to using the Constitution to make sure that we animate all those rights contained in the Bill of Rights and in Section 27 in particular. And isn't it interesting that if it is the case, as the minister says, that they were simply being nice effectively to equal education by not fighting this issue when she, in fact, has got a constitutional unique set of powers to determine what norms and standards are. And she could have won that battle legally, but didn't think that it was strategically necessary because it's up to her anyway to decide what these are. And you can't legislate infrastructure. She goes on to tell Karima a little bit later in the interview that, you know, quite frankly, whether we build a school or not can't be determined by a legal um, injunction. You either have the school built or you don't. Now, what's interesting to me about that exchange is that the minister is profoundly aware that she can do her job if she wants to with or without norms and standards being in place. She's also aware politically that she can be useless, her government can be useless, even if there is an agreement in place. And we've seen that. You can die without getting a house even if your name is attached to a famous constitutional court case, Mrs. Khruidboom, because there can be a gap between a legal victory and enthusiastic, speedy state compliance with a legal agreement. And the minister is profoundly aware of that. And in fact, I'm sorry to say this, minister, if you listen to this podcast episode, in 2023, we are again in a similar situation where if we take Limpopo as one province where lawfare had to continue between civil society organizations and your ministry and effectively the ANC-led government, because it's not about you as an individual, but it is about the government and about everyone taking collective cabinet responsibility, the president included, for this mess. The reason why the judgment, again, had to be achieved in 2021 and to make sure that a structural interdict is in place is because you've been constitutional delinquents. You did not need the norms and standards to be in place from a legal point of view in order to do your job. As a matter of political obligation, ethical obligation, the very basis on which you have been seeking a political mandate to be the government of the day has been a promise faithfully to make sure that you respond to the needs of all South Africans, and in particular the most vulnerable, and you and I know that the most vulnerable are the poor black majority, especially in our most rural provinces, and you have not complied. You haven't complied. If you had, then the young people who would have been in primary school when 2013 happened, and when an interview between you and Karima had happened, would not have to become young student and high school activists and then go and join equal education and section 27 as the next generation of leaders of civil society organizations because the issues that were fought 
by the leadership in those organizations yesteryear would by now no longer be live issues ripe for further activism. But the reason why the activism continues with the same agenda is because you keep being constitutional delinquents. And that is why we are here. And what is the only constant? That you have a job for life inside the ANC-led government and cabinet in particular. I mean, it really is absolutely astounding. And yet between yourself, spokesperson, and the director general, your tone may not be as aggressive as some of the other communicators within government, but there is the same bizarre moral high ground that you think you are able to take when you engage media, the commentariat, and your other stakeholders, um, as if we really don't understand the stats and the facts. And your baseline or your, your top line message, rather, was there's a lot we can do, but there's a hell of a lot that we have done. Um, and I'm afraid that message is a, is a really feeble attempt to make us think as if we simply don't get stats, and that if we did, we would realize that one or two cases are atypical of what is going on in the country. We live in the country with you, and quite frankly, the hundreds of thousands of school ch- children who live under these conditions don't live the middle class and the elite lives that you live and um, and some of us live in the suburbs as well. So I want to play you another part of this conversation right towards the end that was also, um, I thought, quite quite instructive. I want to comment on it and then move on to a slightly different part of it. All I can do is to really say that he should do it, but if he doesn't do it, there's nothing I can do about it. Now, you know, uh, Minister, when you speak like this, you can be misinterpreted. One can um, infer from that that you're washing your hands of the problem. It's not my problem. I can't do anything about it. But the law doesn't allow you to do it. Because like you say... You don't appoint MECs and they don't account to you. But what you do do, Minister, is that you have your uh, MINMEC meetings. You have your meetings with your MECs um, to operationalize national plans, national visions. What do you do in those meetings? Where's your stick to beat the non-performers? No, the stick is to, it's, it's already... It's, 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 that's why sometimes we call them MECs, it's, 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 Education Coordinating Committee. What, for instance, we'll do with medicine science, I just did a review on why we're not making the necessary breakthrough in medicine science, as instructed by the president. So I had a very high-level team to go into provinces. And the team comes back and say, Minister, your powers around policy, monitoring, and support. Your predecessors by 2001 had a medicine science strategy. If you were to ask us as professors to make your strategy, we'll give you the same strategy. It's still relevant 10 years down the line. So why but why has it not provinces have to implement it. I don't implement, I don't, I mean, of the education budget, I don't have more than 10% of that budget. That budget goes to provinces. Now, you see what's interesting here, and I wanted to include that little exchange because there was something on Twitter when I tweeted about this this morning. The vast majority of South Africans who responded were, and who had also watched the press conference, shared the sentiment that indeed this government should be appalled that it had not eliminated pit toilets by now, right? And I think that's just the bottom line. I mean, if you can't get the basics right, you really shouldn't be in government. One person, which I could have ignored, but I think his point is important, said, guys, I get your rage, but providing basic infrastructure is not her part of her purview. It is, in fact, what municipalities should be doing. Now, I just want to be very clear here that we cannot let overall 
the ANC led government off the hook by pretending that they work in silos and therefore that we can isolate them from collective responsibility for letting us down as citizens. I mean, that's just absolute balderdash. Yes, we have a complicated three-sphere government model and a model of cooperative governance. And yes, as Karima points out, the idea of concurrency where certain responsibilities between national and provincial governments may overlap and in some aspects there will be exclusive legal authority to deal with particular issues, the same with local government. At the end of the day, particularly 10 years ago when the ANC was at its strongest administratively in terms of the number of local municipalities, um, provincial governments, and nationally, that it was controlling, and the extent of its mandate based on the kind of electoral wins that it had, it was entirely up to the ANC to make sure that it had optimal cooperation interministerially to ensure that the economic cluster speaks to education ministries and that you do not have a situation where whoever you need to rely on as Minister Mochecha to ensure that you get, for example, transportation correct so that textbooks that are ordered can arrive before the beginning of the school year in Limpopo, and equally that you are able to rely on contractors to make sure that schools are built, that mud structures are eliminated, um, and your excuse cannot be that there's certain parts of the value chain of bringing about the infrastructure that constitutes the necessary norms and standard that is simply beyond your control. Or in her case, to suggest that because MECs exist and provinces exist by design, that she can only be held accountable effectively for 10% of the of the budget because the rest is basically devolved down to provincial level. That is absolute rubbish. She's the national minister in charge with real political clout, a senior ANC politician, a senior member of the executive, and the system was designed to make sure that there's cooperation. And of course, she can talk to you know, not only premiers, you can talk to your president when he holds you accountable and you in turn can have a conversation with him about the performance of the DG. So the fact that you don't have hiring and firing powers, as she says, is a piss poor explanation for why overall you don't have service provision at the point at which the residents and communities expect things to work and rightly and legitimately have that particular expectation. So that for me simply doesn't work. And the reason I mention that is that if you go onto YouTube and you go and have a listen, um, you know, and hope you won't fall asleep when you do so, to the beginning of the remarks by the Director General in basic education, he actually pulls off a similar stunt. And I thought to myself, I really hope the journalists who are covering this are not asleep. He has the audacity of saying that the numbers, firstly, are not that bad in terms of the number of schools that had been targeted and progress had been made. Um, 
and that, you know, they are proud, although there's a lot more that needs to be done, that they are proud of how many schools they've managed to deal with effectively, that around 3,398 needed fixing, and in accordance with the SAFE program, around 2,400 or thereabouts had already been fixed. And if it wasn't for COVID-19, which resulted in funds being diverted, and also if it wasn't for a lack of capacity in the build and construction environment, they would have they would have had more progress. And I thought to myself, words that I can't say on this episode of Eusebius on Times Live. The reality is that you had promised to eliminate pit toilets years ago before COVID-19 was an issue. Also, if you agreed to norms and standards in 2013, how the hell could you not solve for the needs that you have in terms of what you need the construction industry to provide? We are a country in which, when we need to, build programs work extremely well. Look at how we build Stadia in 2010. We've got lots of small players that are waiting for a break in the construction industry because of the oligopoly effect that the major players have had in that sector, where Competition Commission has had to be very vigilant and try and break the oligopolies that exist in the industry. You know, and, and so it's absolute nonsense to imagine that you could not possibly invite potentially hundreds and thousands of qualifying businesses in the build environment and in construction sector to be able to help you to eliminate pit toilets in our schools. So the idea that the market is letting down the state is just complete and utter rubbish. So what we heard from the DG this morning was, again, an attempt to externalize the problem. And I'm afraid no one is fooled by that explanation because that explanation is absolutely disingenuous. And you know, what saddened me this morning is that I thought the genesis of all of this is, of course, the horrendous reality that in 2014, we lost little Michael Komape, and that should never have been the case. We lost, in Limpopo, a young child who drowned in a pit toilet, and that's a situation that we really should never, ever, in a democracy experience where the right to dignity In fact, dignity itself, before we even talk about the other rights in the Bill of Rights, dignity is our most important foundational value. And when a child drowns in a bucket of shit, and I use that word deliberately, to tap into its visceral power, then we are all collectively shamed. We are all collectively shamed. And even then, there had to be legal cases fought by civil society to get government to agree to clearly specify timelines in a program of action to eliminate pit toilets, and that never happened. Never happened. Which is why in 2019, they had to undergo, they had to come up with further public campaigns, and many of us were involved, some journalists were involved, to try and focus on hashtag justice for Michael. Um, and, you know, I was involved in that campaign and it, it gave me little pleasure to do so as a broadcaster, as an analyst. But quite frankly, there are moments in the history of a country where, as my friend Karima would have said, you know, journalism can't just be about being a stenographer. It's got to exist itself as part of an enterprise in your society 
that is aimed at bringing about change. And if it doesn't do that, what is its point? It's We're not just here as stenographers. So every now and then, we've got to take a stand. And this was a campaign by Section 27. You can find it on the Section 27 um, YouTube account. And it is the I Stand with Michael campaign they had. Now, again, timeline is important. And one of the advantages of getting old and having institutional memory as an older journalist is that we can bring that history to bear for extra accountability on the government. This happened in 2014. The campaign to eliminate toilets was ongoing since day one. This was a reminder in 2019 that we had not yet seen justice. And in 2023, we wake up and we still have the same situation. This was one of many video campaigns on the part of Section 27. And this was my entry at the time in relation to five years since Michael Komape had drowned. Five years ago, little Michael Kumape died in a pit routine, and in many ways that description is not the right one. He didn't die in a pit routine. He was killed by a state and a society that was uncaring and didn't care enough for the inherent dignity of little children who are entitled to proper sanitation in each and every single South African school. And yet, in 2019, justice has still not been fully served. The courts recognized that his rights were violated, his family's fundamental rights were violated, and the rights of other children were violated. And despite that, both the state and the judiciary shamelessly has the audacity of not recognizing that this is a classic example of one case where constitutional damages ought to be awarded to the family. And it is for that reason that I, as an active citizen, want to lend my voice in a small way to say, I stand with my group. And that, of course, was just before the Supreme Court of Appeal was going to hear a case about whether or not damages should be awarded. Now, it's absolutely ghastly that we were even wrestling with the question of justice for Michael. And of course, the reason for it was very simple, that the state would oppose that because it would fear what the consequences might be if, in fact, you know, every citizen whose rights, fundamental socioeconomic rights that are justiciable had to be um, compensated for when those rights were not upheld by the state. And that's why that particular case was such an incredibly, incredibly important case, a really, really important case. Um, And I just want to end by saying a couple of things. Firstly, I take my hat off to the civil society organizations that have been relentless in making sure that we focus our attentions on that put toilets in our schools, that we broaden that conversation to infrastructure in general that is not, in fact, proper, that continues to result in the growing gap in access to good education between the haves and the have-not, which in turn continues to be an important factor that results in South Africa being the most unequal nation on earth. And with little resources, 
no major corporates behind them, incredibly hard work from talented activists and lawyers who could have careers in the private sector but choose not to. It is really to them that we need to say thank you for being an important bulwark against political abuse of power and lack of regard for constitutional duty on the part of the government. And yeah, of course, there are other accountability mechanisms, Chapter 9 organizations, the media, opposition parties, but the unique role that civil society organizations play, especially equal education and Section 27 in this particular space, I think is really, really, really important. I, yeah, just think that, you know, if you're an opposition party listening to this conversation, you would be really idiotic not to make the 2024 elections a referendum on what this government has done or not done for black life. Please check out the work of Equal Education. Support them. In my opinion, you should donate to them. The same with Section 27. They've got a lovely short form. You've got to see the visuals to really get the full power of it. And this is courtesy, again, of their work. It's not mine. Um, but their short form on Michael Komape will keep the activism related to the importance of norms and standards alive. And um, it's a video that is moving, but also one that we should internalize and then ask yourself this question. As an active citizen, what is your involvement in helping to bring about justice for every single child including the ones in rural South Africa. I'll describe some of the visuals for you. You'll see in the video, it's a day in the life of a rural kid who has to wake up extremely early not having the luxuries of those of us who have proximity to the schools where we live, with poor resources, has to leave house, scantily clad, not always having the right uniform, but being wished well by mom or gogo or an older sibling in child-headed child households. And which parents send their kids to school imagining the possibility that they may die at school. Worse than that, die undignified by falling into a pit toilet. Which parent does that? should be about playing innocently and if children are playing the most you should worry about are maybe scraping of the skin on the playground as they play rough you shouldn't have to worry about what might happen if they were to go to the toilet 
And then break is over. Learning continues. And little Michael Gomape asked to go to the toilet. Because there's no infrastructure, he has to go to a pet toilet. But never returns. His friends go and search for him. Family is called, everyone searches for kilometers. Family has to walk to get there. And his dead body is found at the bottom of a pit toilet. He had drowned. is the legacy of our government. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people zone, their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it.